Okay. Thank you so much for coming. I'm really excited to have our next guest on the podcast for the Clinical Social Work Journal. And um, this is Dr. Sarah Busey. Am I saying your name? Busey. Yeah, like the bus. Mm-hmm. Like the bus. Good to know. <laughs> an article that was just published online in the Clinical Social Work Journal is called Identifying Biases in the Practice with Social Work Supervisees. Findings from a Grounded Theory Exploratory Study. And in the show notes, you'll be able to find a link to that study so that you can access it. And thank you to Springer for allowing anything that we put on the podcast to be available to the listeners for 30 days. So um, I would love for you to just introduce yourself and then share anything particularly relevant that you feel like would be helpful for our listeners to know in terms of your background or your experience. Um, and and then we can shift into talking about this particular study and what led you to do this study. Sure. So thanks so much for this opportunity. It's really exciting for me uh, to do this with you. I've worked in social work for about um, just over 20 years, the first 10 years in, in different youth work capacities, and then the last 13 years or so in a large health care um, system. I try to approach social work using an anti-racist, anti-oppressive lens, so centering the impact of race and racism, considering the impact of history on the current state, a systems level perspective approach. Um, I value kind of the idea of interconnectedness between all of us and reciprocity. And so with that kind of challenging or exploring the role of the social worker as the expert and and rather instead, are we how do we co-construct reality with the people that we work with? So those are some of the values or ideas that drive um, my practice. I went back to school in 2016 for my PhD. I just finished in 2022 um, and I was working throughout that process. And so the the research we're talking about came out of that time in, in my doctoral studies. Um, so could you share a little bit about the study and what you did and what prompted you really to conduct this? Sure. So um the reason for the study really came out of my clinical practice. So I was working as a social worker, as a supervisor with with social workers, and I was trying to supervise from an anti-racist perspective, and I got really mixed responses. Some folks were really open to talking about racism and power and oppressive dynamics within the work, and other folks responded really negatively. So I went back to the literature um, for some guidance, and I didn't really find much there. And so I realized interrupt you for a second. Oh, I'm sure. sorry, but what do you mean? How, what do you mean they, re, what would, what would be a negative reaction versus a positive reaction? Like what sure. were, that's really interesting. So what were yeah. some, how, how would we know what was a negative reaction versus? Okay. A- so, so I, um, I went to, uh, I'll try to give some context. I went to a master's program on the West coast and then moved back to the East coast, uh, to do clinical practice. And I think that where I had been trained had a slightly more radical approach to understanding issues of oppression and racism at the time. So I tried to incorporate some of the exercises from my MSW education into like group supervision spaces where we could do group exercises and whatnot. And um, for some people, they were really excited to to have have these discussions. And for some folks, they said I was anti-white, that I was um, trying to... um, target them. There was actually like a movement to get me fired at one point. It was, I mean, it was extreme. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's not something I love to talk about, but yeah, it was. What were some of the examples of the exercises? If you could just give a flavor of, of one of the exercises that you Sure. So, um, 
this was back in the early 2010. So like the, um, the identity matrix. So where you look at different aspects of your identity that are like privileged or are not privileged or targeted like that. I think that was the language at the time. So like what your racial or ethnic identity is, maybe your gender identity, nationality. I mean, just thinking about really to, what my, my hope with it was because I found it so helpful in school to think about how the self comes into the work. And so the idea was to build kind of that reflexive muscle with my team and think about when you walk into the room, what's coming with you in terms of like visual identifiers and then uh, your values and, and things like that. So I was really using kind of concrete exercises um, like that, talking about and going through different types of oppression. So not only focusing about focusing on race and racism, but thinking about sexism and um, heterosexism and just so just what I would do is try to bring in like a either a, a uh, like a icebreaker or an actual exercise into each group of supervision. So it would only be for the first five or 10 minutes, but just to kind of get us together and talking. And um, like I said, some of it was well received. It, it, it has definitely evolved, I think. Um, especially with like the 2020 global racial uprisings, which actually occurred during my research, which was a really interesting shift as well. But at that time, it was really, uh, it was a really sticky situation for me, and I didn't expect it. And so that's when I said, okay, let me see if there's scholarship here to help guide me through this of like, these types of reactions or how to navigate it. Does wow. that help explain yeah. it? Yeah. yeah, super interesting. Um, when you said negative reactions, I did not imagine it was extreme. Yeah. It was that extreme. That's yeah. super, super fascinating around. I mean, it makes me curious to know, and this is obviously a sidebar, which we're not going to talk about, but yeah. in my mind, I'm like, well, what was going on for that person that would, that would feel so threatening or so anti who they were or anti-white or whatever that was. That's. Yeah. And I think, I mean, this is. That this we're is, both white women. Sitting right. Here talking right. About. I, I'm making actually I'm making an assumption that you identify as a white woman. I, do, but yeah. you, you, you I think it's in, it should, I think it's in the article as like a yeah, it is in the article. yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think this is one of the challenges of, of our profession that um when I was thinking about this conversation that I think makes it so hard that I think was a piece of what was coming up is that we, you know, many of us come into social work because there's this overt social justice aspect to the field that's different from some of the other helping professions, right? And then I think it creates almost like, I don't know if double bind is the right, I don't know if I'm using the word that term correctly, but it's like much harder than to actually interrogate how social work might be participating in harm. And so I think at an interpersonal level, that was somewhat happening, like, wait a minute, I endorse social justice, I want to help people. So how could I be potentially inadvertently harming people uh, by having less awareness around certain dynamics? And I think you know, in a healthcare setting in an, in a, an urban environment, there's going to be a lot of working across differences in every direction. So that's why I was trying to focus on it uh, with my team. Very, very interesting. Okay. So yeah. sorry for that sort of. No, 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 no. It's flow, flow break there, but it's, um, it's all good. Yeah. It helps explain my kind of passion in it. So then what, based on these experiences, it sounds like that really pulled you into wanting to study how do we do supervision and how, how is this incorporated? Yeah. And I think, you know, more broadly, I'm, I'm because of my whiteness and, and, and because of the harm that I think living in a racist system does to me as well as obviously other people in different ways and different groups in different ways. I'm invested in kind of trying to figure out ways to disrupt white supremacy and disrupt racism. And I kept in my doctoral studies, so I kind of went really big. And then I, I kind of kept coming back to this idea of, okay, right in these, these small 
uh, moments that can ripple really largely. How do we as, as social workers and or supervisors like impact the field and the people we work with in a respectful and healing way rather than in a harmful way? So that's, that's kind of where it all circled around. Yeah. So, you know, because there wasn't a lot out there, I, I took a qualitative approach that was what was recommended and, you know, for more an exploratory study. And um, the question was really broad just uh, to to allow them to come out in the data, like what was more specific about it. So the question that I looked at was the, the strategies that social work supervisors who self-identify as anti-racist use to disrupt racism in the practice of their supervisees. So um, the folks that I... Um, recruited had to have been supervising for at least two years, but most of them had many more years um, of supervisory experience. Um, but they had they came from kind of different walks of life and a lot of different kind of uh, levels of exposure to anti-racist tenants and whatnot too. So, um, but yeah, the qualitative approach was, was how, should I go into kind of what I, what I did with it? Is that um, helpful at this point or? Well, I think you could maybe share a few, a few of your questions that you asked to to get at some of the data sure. that you're seeking? I was really asking first about kind of what led you into practicing from an anti-racist lens and then thinking about like, what does that mean? How do you define anti-racism? And then um, I actually did ask an explicit question around like, how would you disrupt or how do you, uh, how do you identify biases within the practices or like what, what, what strategies might you use to say, um, this might be a bias that's underlying this approach to to the work that someone that you're supervising is doing. And then what are some strategies that you've tried to use to address it or disrupt it? It was it was a range of open ended questions because I use grounded theory. The idea right there is that you're collecting data, then you're doing some data analysis and then you're going back to data collection. So I did two two different interview um, sets with the same group of people. And so the questions actually evolved. So some of the second interviews were were including questions that came out of some of the, the thoughts that arose when I was analyzing the first uh, set of data that I had collected. Um, yeah, so really open-ended um, thinking about also the ways, the strategies that the the participants thought were actually effective versus not effective, like where did they see impact happening? It was interesting that it was much easier for the participants to speak about times and places, uh, situations where they didn't feel like they had as much of an impact than the ones where they felt like they really saw that it, that it worked per, per se, you know, with the person that they were supervising. Also uh, asked them about times where maybe they observed something that seemed biased or, or, or potentially problematic in the practice and didn't do anything and what that was all, what that was like for them, you know, in, in retrospect and ways that they find support the impact of the organizational context. So it was a very broad range of questions trying to swirl around this idea in many different ways. And why do you think that they were able to identify more easily places where they didn't feel like they were making an impact? I don't know that that was a key part of your study, but do you have any ideas about why that might be versus... I, I mean, it could be just negativity bias psychologically that we're, we hold on to the situations where we're like feeling shame or guilt yeah. or regret, right? That yeah. I, I thought that that potentially was part of it. I think it's also hard, um, similar, like parallel to the work that we're doing with service users, right? It's hard to see if we're planting a seed that grows. Like it's hard to see if something germinates from the work that we're doing with, with our supervisees. And so 
I think sometimes it was hard for them to feel confidently like I impacted that. You know, there were instances where they had a sense that there was more of an epiphany or an awakening where a person would say, oh, I kind of get where you're coming from. Or maybe even just an inroad where the supervisor would then send kind of like psychoeducational material and say, check this video out or do the, you know, (laughs) look at this reading and let's talk about it. And because someone wasn't uh, defensive and instead was open to it, that that was a little bit of a win or a move in in, in a positive direction, you know. But I think, um, and also it was, it might've been just self-consciousness of wanting to say, I did, I, you know, I did that. Right. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. That make that makes sense. I think we all do this. You get a review back from a paper and you just focus on the negative comments yeah. or you get yeah, or a performance review. Back. Yeah. You yeah. just focus in on the negative. I think Absolutely. that makes sense. Yeah. So what would you say are some of the main key findings for our listeners to to know about around this topic? What were some yeah. of the things that you you really can say, okay, these are the three or five whatever take home messages? Well, I mean, I think specifically related to kind of like the the clinical work, I think hopefully the paper offers a few actual tangible tactics or approaches that supervisors can use to just look and focus their energy on to maybe potentially identify biases or like opportunities for exploration through like the clinical discussions they're having with their staff, reactions to clinical encounters, um, maybe differences in how um, uh, a worker or supervisee is approaching an intervention with one person versus another and whether there's a trend there or something just for exploration. And, And again, this is not about putting down or um, shaming or blaming. It's about just saying, hey, I'm noticing or observing this. Let's talk about it. And it's an inroad to unpacking and and, and addressing potential biases. Again, this is all like just opportunities to, to, to deepen the discussion with the goal that we're moving all of ourselves towards a higher level of race consciousness and, and doing less harm with the folks that we work with. And with that, the participants talk about kind of naming the behavior rather than uh, conflating it to the whole person as a way that could have uh, open up a good conversation with somebody rather than create a lot of defensiveness, um, maybe making a, a pattern more explicit so that like, if there is, you know, the influence of these kind of oppressive dynamics that we're all socialized into within the work that maybe we could just name that dynamic and then say, this could be because of how, you know, we function as a society, let's try to to challenge it or counteract it, you know, and really using it as an opportunity to build relationship rather than kind of push someone away, push someone away, you want to create opportunities for dialogue. So, you know, those were some of the the pieces that were more concrete that came out of this. And so let me just make sure that I'm clarifying that the people you interviewed are supervisors of social workers, yes, are actively working in the field, working with a variety of different clients in different contexts. And that you were really trying to figure out what do they do? Yes. What do your participants do in their supervision with their supervisees to create an anti-racist, anti-oppressive approach mm-hmm. to their own practice? Yeah. And so obviously we, as a profession, we highly value supervision, not just towards licensure, but in general and making sure that you are um, noticing your blind spots and having somebody else have a uh, an opportunity to give you feedback. Um, I want to be clear that you weren't looking at clients' outcomes, no. but the idea would be that hopefully, again, clinically, that the ripple effect of yes. these supervisor supervisees changing the way that they approach their clients, changing the way they approach their practices yeah. in order to 
um, be consistent with an anti-racist, anti, um, anti-oppression, social justice oriented mm-hmm. way. And that that would ultimately have a direct impact on the clients. Yeah, that's the hope, right? The, the parallel right. process that you mentioned, exactly. And and so there's an opportunity as supervisors, right, to model. So like how I might approach the conversation with someone I work with, uh, who's a staff person might be a similar approach they might take with their their service users or clients, whomever the the stakeholder group is that they're working with. But um, yes, that's a, you, you, you said it very eloquently. Okay, so you mentioned a little something about this at the beginning. But as you said, social work, as a profession is completely oriented, maybe not completely, but a huge orientation towards social justice and working with marginalized populations and a focus on empowerment means in our mission statement. Right. Why do you think that, I mean, I know in our classes, and I'm sure in the classes that you took, or if you teach, that you talk about self-awareness, you talk about identity, you talk about the intersectionality of different identities. Given that this is such a core part of who we are as a profession, why do you think we continue to struggle with this? And why would some people really have that pushback and that negative reaction to that? I mean, you mentioned a little bit, but it feels like this is such a core of who we are as a profession. Mm -hmm. And it seems like this is a duh, every, it should be part of every conversation that we're having when we're talking about clinical work and, and who we are as a profession and and how we enter into our interactions with clients, whether that's on a micro, meso or macro level. Right. What do you think is contributing to the struggles and on the extreme, the negativity that you experienced when those kinds of dialogues and conversations were brought in? I mean, I think although I, I agree with you completely, I don't think these these ideas are coming into every conversation or every classroom. I think in a lot of programs, diversity, uh, oppression, anti-racism, these ideas are still kind of put in one class, one course, and not necessarily integrated throughout the curriculum. So I think there's a lot of work that can be done to not have these concepts be standalone, but instead integrate them and weave them in, as you mentioned. I mean, what you said would be an amazing thing if we were doing it that way. That's not been my experience so much. I think... The profession and, and we as individuals are all susceptible to the larger societal dynamics. And so social work is a microcosm, right? So supervision is a microcosm as long as we're living in a society where there is racism, heterosexism, patriarchy, are these challenging dynamics. They're going to, they're going to permeate. And so I think the question is, how are we actively and explicitly trying to interrogate where they where they show up? So, I, I mean, the way I think about it is that we're a profession that developed out of and is reflective of a larger problematic history of the country that I don't feel like we have yet fully grappled or reckoned with um, in terms of history, chattel slavery, genocide, racial settler colonialism, all these dynamics that some of us are really trying to dig deeper into. But we have a lot of work to do as a community, and I think sus- you know, social work is a part of that larger system. And so, you know, historically and currently, social workers have played a part in maintaining certain parts of the system that some would argue, I would argue, are very harmful. So until we're really able to kind of do that deep dive, I think we're going to continue to reflect some of these problematic dynamics interpersonally and also as as a profession. But I think, you know, as you mentioned, I think you know, uh, social work education is a, an incredible opportunity to kind of shift uh, shift uh, how people think about themselves in the work. I think even 
how the history of social work is taught is very whitewashed. I think there's some good critiques coming out around that. What type, how do we define social work? What type of community healing is considered social work and what's excluded? What historic figures are celebrated and ones that aren't? How we're celebrating those figures, you know, um, which voices are coming into play? So I think all those things are are a part of it. It's it it can go as far as looking at how we think about like what clinical practices are promoted, what's who defines what evidence based is, um, how we teach about human behavior. I mean, all these pieces I think deserve a lot of uh, interrogation. As I said, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So not not to sound super flip, flippant, but. Um... And you didn't say this, I'm sort of saying this, that in some ways social work isn't all that special, that we we are part of the system that continues um, with all the racism and oppressive practices and the structures. And you're absolutely right. Social workers have been and continue to be in many ways part of systems that continue to promote, maybe not intentionally, but um, uh, structural racism and structural inequality. So, yeah, I think we're not special in the sense that we're not exempt from this examination. Exactly. You know, I mean, I think there's a lot of opportunity, but we're not exempt. But I think I think that there are chances to like compel, for example, CSWE to give tangible guidance around like, you you know, there's recommendations around doing anti-racist education and practice. But where are the tangible uh, pieces that schools can look to and be held accountable to? And now with the way things are nationally, I think you know, professors and students in certain states are not going to even be able to teach and talk about certain topics. So there's like the censorship of education that's happening, which impacts our profession. So, I, you know, it's very concerning. Um, but it also has to do with those of us that are already in the work, you know, so school is a great starting point, but then it's kind of like for those of us in the work, we have, I think, an obligation to examine where are we potentially not oh, aware of how we are participating, as you mentioned, in structural violence in the work that we're doing. The the good news in my mind is that I do think that that small shifts can amount to big change. So it can be very overwhelming. And I have moments where I do feel more helpless and, more, you know, and then I kind of go back to the idea that because it's, I say that because all these problematic dynamics are so baked into the way the country evolved. And, and so we're still contending with it, right? But if we make mindful shifts it can swell, it can change things. And that's where I think supervisors have like a really uh, great opportunity, you know, but if we don't, we're making an active choice. So that's the part where I think we have to hold ourselves and each other accountable in a respectful and loving way. But to say like, by not challenging these things, we're saying that this is okay. And and from my framework, I'm being harmed as long as other people are being harmed in my community. You know, harm to anyone is harm to everyone in my mind. So it's like, I don't want to, I don't want to endorse that. You know, one of the things when you talk about social work education, one of the things that my students often talk about is that we as professors will teach them certain practices or certain approaches, and then they go into the field and their supervisors don't kind of follow those same practices that we say are quote unquote gold standard or what you again, quote unquote, what you should be doing in the field, even basic things like creating treatment plans for clients. I'm continuing. I'm always astounded when we teach treatment plans. And then I say, so how many of you have done a treatment plan in the field? And nobody does it. And we talk about the importance of evaluating outcomes for clients. And then um, I say, how many of you have outcomes that you're examining 
in your field and nobody is doing it in the field. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if this is something similar that even for schools that are talking about these different self-reflection and mm-hmm. awareness of these practices, that sounds great in the classroom. And then they right. go to the field and those dialogues aren't happening and those conversations aren't happening. And administrators of the programs are not modeling or providing opportunities for these kinds of dialogues. It seems like we have multiple sources of issues around how to create these changes that, yes, schools of social work absolutely have a responsibility to set the foundation, but then they go into the field and then they get these mixed messages about what is important. Like you said, if if a supervisor is not dialoguing with them about it, that sends a message, well, this doesn't happen in the field. Even if we say in the classroom, this is important and we value this as a profession, but then it's not modeled for them in their practice settings. Right. And so I, I'm wondering if, and then those folks go on to be supervisors, right. you know, and then they enter the field and they're getting their supervision post MSW. And if those conversations are still not happening, they're socialized to provide supervision as they are receiving supervision. I mean, what do you think we can be doing about, even if let's just say schools of social work do everything they're supposed to do. I totally get your point. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's really hard, but I, you know, I think a lot of things come to mind. One is how are we holding ourselves accountable in the field, right? So the NASW just said that you have to do um, continuing education around ethical decision-making every three years. Why are we not centering discussions around anti-racist, anti-oppressive practice as a requirement, even if it's force feeding it. If you help make certain content normative, then it's harder to then alienate and marginalize people who want to have these discussions, right? So like at my job, for example, once the global, more uh, white community was saying, we need to now talk about uh, systemic racism and police terror, then all of a sudden I can use the word white supremacy in a presentation and it's not seen in the same way. So there is, it, it, I'm not saying that's the, the I, there's, I, I don't have a solution, but I'm just suggesting that I think if we create a more normative dynamic around these, these topics, conferences, continuing education spaces, but with the accountability piece hooked into maybe licensure, professional organizations, the fact that your journal was willing to publish this article is great, right? So bringing these ideas and these topics into um, spaces that people who might not be seeking it out are going to then be exposed to. And then it also provides something for people who are passionate or personally impacted or personally invested in it to look to and point to and say, but here, like this is being talked about here. So why can't we bring this in? You know, why can't we look at it this way? And, you know, it's, it's risky. I was taking a risk. We all take risks. My personal risk was less because I'm white and it was still a risk within my job because it did amount to, to what happened. However, you know, you, it, so there are, there is, there's some level of risk, I suppose, in, in the change making process. But I, I think that's why I think finding community uh, is really helpful because you can share strategies and ideas and support one another. Um, the participants I, I spoke with talked a lot about the danger of being alienated in this work and just being totally overwhelmed without support and accountability places for healing and accountability, depending on, you know, where they're at. Yeah. I mean, the idea of tying it to CEUs is something that I do think some states are starting to think about. I mean, here in the DC area, we call it the DMV, which is District of Columbia, Maryland, and Virginia. And it's interesting because all three have different requirements and, but DC 
is the only one that usually has a specialization of some sort of issue. So be, several years ago when HIV and AIDS epidemic was just huge and um, tied to mostly drug use um, was in the city, there were requirements around um, ethics and working with HIV and AIDS. So in order to get your license renewed, you had to demonstrate, I think it was two hours of continuing ed on those issues. Now it's on LGBTQI populations. You have to include CEUs around that. And it is interesting that in the three districts where I am licensed, and I used to be licensed in North Carolina, none of them require anything on anti-racist or anti-oppressive populations and or practices that that isn't something that is incorporated in. And I do think that is a way to keep the dialogue present for people and to, to make that be part of our, our professional development and, and, and hopefully integrating that into practices. And it also supports people in doing more study and presentations about it because then there's a space to bring it to. You know what I mean? Like it, it, if you you could then say, oh, I, I'm going to do a study and present about it now that they want CEUs in this area. Like it kind of, it, it has like multiple yeah. benefits to it. And then, you know, some, I've noticed some conferences more recently are focusing ideas of this as like the, the special topic or, yeah. you know, uh, and some special journal uh, calls for papers. Um, so it's, it's happening. I, I, <sighs> No, and I would say that in our professional conferences, like the annual program meeting for Council for Social Work Education and also for Society for Social Work Research, I would say there are specific um, calls and Mm -hmm. uh, special interest groups for those particular topic areas, but that's like in, quote unquote, the academy. That's not necessarily the trickle down effect into practice settings. We, we know that there's often a 10 year lag between what happens in research and then how it eventually enters into the field. And so that's just a huge problem that mm-hmm. how are we, how are our academics, even in social work still in their ivory towers and they're not doing community and participatory research partnerships how is how is this translation? I mean, we just have a huge translational issue of yeah. of what we're talking about, sort of in the again the academy and and many would say the ivory tower, and how does that translate into everyday practice across populations, across contexts, and urban, rural, east, yeah. west, north, south, et cetera. Absolutely. Um, so I, I do think that we as a profession need to think more about that. And, you know, one of the things that you're prompting me to think about is what could we do as a journal? Yes, we published your study and we publish other studies. And we have had special issues even before I became editor um, focused on these issues. But we also could be doing more to highlight the articles that are in our journal and mm-hmm. and focus that have already been published and remind people of this research and to keep that conversation active and alive. So, yeah. And I I think what you mentioned with community based participatory action research, those kinds of like uh, approaches to to methodology are still a little bit harder to push through IRBs, you know? So I think that, you know, I went the qualitative route and built in member checking as like an attempt to get the voices more of the participants into the data analysis and process. Mm -hmm. Um, However, it was, 
so there's, there's mechanisms that kind of hold us back still. However, you know, something you you made me think about that something I wanted to do next in future research is to involve, you know, supervisors in helping create the products that we could put out into the broader, you know, kind of like public facing access, because these journals are wonderful spaces for academics, but the, you know, the audience is, is kind of, it's a niche, right? So thinking about a kind of a a community-based approach to another research project where the end goal would be, you know, asking the supervisors in the field who are identifying this way and trying to do this work, like what would help you in this work and how can we then disseminate it in in an open and free manner, you know, with the benefits of like the internet and things like that. So um, that was one of the ideas. So much more accessibility now. We, the post-COVID, we're living in a very different world where webinars are accessible and online modules are everywhere. So we, we, we don't really have an excuse anymore yeah, precisely on how to get information into the hands of the people that could really utilize it. And, and ideally, you know, when I think about just given that I'm a faculty member, it is really frustrating to talk about something and then not have that be reflected in the field. And I can imagine. Yeah. So the more that we can create um, training sites and contexts where there's a, I guess, a consistency um, or more congruence between what we're saying is important in the classroom. And I'm not saying I'm doing it perfectly. I'm certainly not saying I am the model of this because I could, I absolutely could be doing better and more in the classroom around talking about these issues. But I'm saying we, as a, as yeah, we should be striving as schools of social work to be Mm -hmm. preparing students to be thinking about these things in a, and, you know, in a more effective way, absolutely hundred percent, including myself. And then how can we also support the field and the field placements to create more congruence between these values that we have and how can we also be learning? I'm not saying that the also social work education should be dictating what's in the field. It should also be reciprocal. What what can we learn from the field Absolutely. and what people are doing in the field to help us in the in the classroom do better? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's actually one of the things that I love about because I still practice and um, I love the reciprocity that comes with. Mm-hmm. Uh, knowledge of my practice and how that informs my teaching, how my teaching informs my practice. And we could be doing better also of receiving information and using that information to inform what we do in the classroom from our field instructors, from our field seminar leaders, from um, the program directors. So yeah, it's clearly a multi-layer, multi-factoral approach. Um, Well, so as we sort of think about action steps. If you could mm-hmm. think about what are two, three, um, whether it's on a school of social work or the field in general, or what could an individual supervisor do or an individual practitioner? Because I would imagine a practitioner could say to their supervisor, hey, this is important to me. And yeah. I want to advocate for this to be part of my supervision with you. Um, so it, it can't be all on the supervisor. It also has to be coming from the supervisee to advocate for themselves in their own learning. Right. It can't be. And I think the power dynamics make it a little tricky, right. And depending on the positionality or right? 
identity of the people involved, it can get a little, a little yeah. sticky there, right? Because I think as supervisors, we have the power to invite in that this is an okay thing to talk about. Um, yeah. And that I welcome it and that I, and that I center it in every conversation. I mean, that was another piece that um, wasn't so much highlighted in, in this article, but that came through in the research is that, you know, if you build a solid relationship, meaning that you're really being, seeing the whole human on both sides as much as is appropriate for the situation you're in, and then just bring race in all the time into discussion. So it's normative. And so that it's not like a random question, then that kind of just makes it a part acknowledged as a part of something that impacts our day to day in this country. Right. So um, I, I do think there's a little more onus on the supervisors in that regard. And I do think that staff can come together and figure out ways to be strategic and kind of push for, for things uh, in the work. I think, you know, on a personal level, trying to push ourselves to engage in critical thinking and, and, and for me learning history was a, my, my inroads. I do just read a lot about the history of different systems and different groups and different, you know, ways that things came to be has helped me see um, more clearly the whys of what's happening right now. So that was a, a helpful path for me, but I think, you know, finding community, challenging yourself, pushing your race conscious development, um, taking risks that are risks, but that don't put you in harm's way. I mean, it's like a delicate balance, right? You know, that's what I would, that's what I would hope for. But I, I think that the whole um, idea here is to demarginalize these discussions and then people are going to be less um, at risk to talk about them. And then we can then we can dig deeper when we can just start having conversations all the time uh, about challenging uh, dynamics that are happening in our work. Then we can actually move forward and do some healing and some accountability, I think. Um, I don't know if I answered your question, but those are some thoughts. I think, I think that's helpful. So is there anything else you would want to add before we end? I just, you know, I just want everyone to challenge one another to do better. I think we can, you know, I believe it's possible. I, I believe that like all that makes us complex humans, uh, it gives us opportunity that there's like opportunity there for re reflection, radical empathy, all these pieces. So um, we, and, and we need to kind of hold each other to it, you know, and keep pushing forward. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I really appreciate it. And I hope everybody will check out your article. Thank and you. um, yeah, I, I thank you for the work that you're doing. And thank you for challenging us as a profession to keep thinking and pushing us forward in this area, because it's it's super important. So I, I really commend you and appreciate the work that you're doing. And and your cat is visiting us right at right at the end here. Right at the end, just for the the ending. Yeah, just point, yeah. just end with the yeah. ending. So. Lovely. Well, no, thank you, thank you so much for this opportunity. I appreciate I appreciate it all, and it's been a great conversation. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah.